Hello podcast listeners, and welcome to another episode of Living Well with Kathleen Saunders, your weekly podcast where we discuss the financial, physical, spiritual, and social well-being of everyday people like you and me. The information shared in this show is for general information purposes only and should not be used to make any personal changes to your lifestyle or health without consulting the appropriate financial, medical, or healthcare professionals. My guest today is Keith Alexandra. Keith was born in Chicago, USA, to two very loving parents. At the age of nine, Keith's mother passed away. His father remarried. However, Keith's stepmother wasn't very nice to him. He moved around from one family member to another. This is when Keith's life would change for the worse and spiral out of control. As you listen to Keith's testimony of how God's hand was on his life during those dark days, you can gain hope knowing that there is no hole too deep that God cannot pull you from. Indeed, God took Keith's mess and gave him a message that he is sharing in Canada. Keith has turned from a victim into a victor, and praise God, he is living for Jesus today. If you or anyone you know is struggling with any type of addiction, know that you can overcome it with the help of Jesus Christ. Yes, treatment centers can support you, but only Jesus can heal your wounded heart. Why not call upon his name? He will hear you. Well, welcome, Keith, and thank you so much for being my guest today. Thank you so much for asking me. It's an honor and a pleasure. Thank you. You know, Keith, I'm really looking forward to hear you share your story of how the Lord brought you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Please tell us your journey and how God worked miraculously in your life. Well, I uh, I definitely like to start at the very beginning. Uh, you know, I, uh, I frequently think about my life and about how God has blessed me with this life. So uh, I was born in Chicago, and um, whenever I get an opportunity to write my story, and I have a couple of versions of it, I always start with I was blessed with two loving, hardworking parents. They were um, involved in their community. They were very well-liked and very well-loved and um, respected. Uh, they were hardworking, and uh, they really took great care of my sister and I. Uh, and um, uh, unfortunately, they were both alcoholic. Um, the story was told many times about my uh, birth, uh, that my mother, uh, being an alcoholic type that she was, she drank every day of uh, her pregnancy with me. And on the way to the hospital while she was in labor, they thought it was a good idea to stop by the liquor store and to buy a fifth of Jack Daniels. Wow. And they finished it before I was born. So, um, so I, I often start with that. I, I think one of the things that um, I, the reason why I start with that is because I was, for one thing, I was told that many, many, many times as a young kid. And also, I think that that was one of the things that kind of set me up for uh, the type of behavior that I exhibited when it came to substances. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, very early on, because I was told I was always cautious of alcohol, 
but I did not believe that it was going to be, I needed the same caution for things like marijuana. And um, my uh, very first time being introduced to marijuana, I did not have any that first time, but my introduction was that I was at a school picnic or a church picnic or a community picnic or something. And the older kids went off and they went off into the woods and I followed them. And there they were in the bushes smoking this little white thing and passing it around. And I was peering from the other bushes watching them. And from that moment, all I wanted to do was smoke a joint. I knew that's what they were doing. And that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to smoke a joint. At that particular time, I believe I was probably eight, nine, maybe 10 years old. And nobody was going to give me a joint. I remember asking my brother, uh, could I smoke a joint? Could you smoke a joint with me? He said, no, I'm not going to smoke a joint with you. Um, in the household that I grew up in, it was my sister and I. My mom and my dad were married. My They had both had been married before. Uh, so I have an older sister from my mom's previous marriage. And I have an older brother and sister from my father's previous marriage. Um, right now, my all of my sisters have passed away um, throughout the years, and remaining is my brother. Oh, wow. Sorry to hear that. Uh, mm. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I, so anyway, so I, I, I had this whole kind of um, uh, obsession with trying to find a joint to smoke <laughs> before <laughs> the age of 12. And... I remember after my first year of high school, it was summertime, and uh, my neighbor, Gary Hurt, had um, graduated from high school at the time. Did he graduate from high school? I think it was high school. And um, I was just in high school, so yes, he had graduated from high school. And uh, he invited me over to his house to smoke a joint so excited and I smoked uh, my very first joint and fell in love with it and had vowed that that would be smoking uh, 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 I would be feeling like that for the rest of my life every day for the rest of my life well um, so uh, Gary Hurt and I became uh, fast friends and of course later on I realized that the only thing that we had in common was marijuana Um, and then of course my uh, life started to uh, get bigger uh, from there. Um, now I'm just going to have to backtrack that. Um, my mom died when I was nine years old. And when my mom died, my father, uh, remarried. So we were living in the suburbs of Chicago, uh, at the time. And then my father remarried and we moved to Chicago, uh, because of my father's alcoholism at that time, he had, um, was an active alcoholic, uh, because of his alcoholism, uh, he manifested his alcoholism in violent ways. So he was very violent. He was what I called a um, um, a gun-toting, street-walking, badass alcoholic. Mm. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> he had an ongoing relationship uh, with uh, hookers and the cops. Oh, mercy. Wow. And uh, so, yeah, he was uh, Seth Alexander. He was uh, He was a beautiful mess. Anyway, uh, what did you say? A beautiful mess? Yeah, he was. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> I loved him. I loved him. He was a great provider uh, and a loving father mm-hmm. and uh, very proud of his children. And 
Uh, unfortunately, he was an alcoholic. He was an alcoholic. And one of the things that I know about addiction these days is that it takes beautiful people and it really turns them into messes, mm. you know. And uh, so it, the person it, themselves are not the addiction, but they can succumb to uh, addiction in really horrible ways. And it can turn them into uh, something uh, opposite to what they were created to be. Anyway, uh, um, so uh, uh, Daddy was uh, an alcoholic and um, he did his best. Um, the marriage that he uh, started uh, after my mom died lasted a year. And my sister and I were uh, moved from place to place after that marriage dissolved, uh, from cousins to uh, my older sister, uh, Martina, uh, back and forth to other cousins, to all, all over the place. On uh, one particular family member, it was actually my brother's home. Uh, I'd gone to my brother's home. And um, so I was living with my father's first wife. We called her Aunt Bobby. And uh, she had a son um, uh, with her uh, marriage after my father. Um, and his name was Robin. Robin was approximately three years older than me. And one night while we were there, Robin crawled into my bed and um, had intercourse with me. And um, my body responded in such a way um, that confused me. Hmm. And um, it's it, one of those things that I learned quickly later on, and it didn't not register until I was delivered, uh, that Robin used to tell me that what he was showing me was something that one of the neighbors had shown him. So there was a an adult neighbor that had molested him, mm-hmm. and he was doing to me what the adult neighbor had done to him. Oh wow! And tell me, um, Keith, how old how old are you when this started? I was I was eleven. Oh wow! This was a repeated thing. Like mm-hmm. you know, I remember uh, uh, I used to try to say no to Robin, and I would run, and um, then Robin would try later on, and the next thing you know, we would be. Um, uh, somewhere we'd be in a room by ourselves or whatever. And the next thing, you know, Robin would pounce, my body would start to respond again. Mm. And, uh, we would, uh, engage in these little, uh, homosexual, um, events mm-hmm. and, um, and have sex wow. as, as much as children could have sex. But, um, one of the things that started to happen with me was that it started to become normal to me. And yeah, it became a repeated thing, so much so that I became really confused about my relationship with Robin. Um, I remember early in my teens, um, 16, 17 years old, thinking that I loved Robin, that I was in love with him. Mm -hmm. And um, um, by that time, I was smoking marijuana daily, and I had even started to uh, uh, prostitute myself go downtown and to find, uh, um, uh, uh, try to make myself attractive, um, to seduce men and, <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and charge them so that I could have money. And it, and, and mostly it was because of the, I think the addiction of, of the control, right. that's what you want to call it. The control of prostitution, Okay. the okay. control and the, um, 
the uh, that whole that whole thing about desire and the yeah it had it had to do with desire it had to do with desire i was exhibiting my control i was i was wielding my control i i loved standing on the corner and i loved as the cars would go by standing on the corner looking provocative looking in a way that i was looking for somebody to pick me up for mm. sex wow i wow. mean you clearly you clearly knew that i was on the corner mm-hmm. For, for no good, you know what I'm saying, right. and and for and for sexual purpose, I, I definitely stood on the corner, uh, deliberately looking like I was available mm-hmm. for sex. Prostitution had netted me a couple of trips to Europe and um, pick up a phone and just have a hire a car. So wow. I was, uh, yeah, so I was a successful prostitute. Wow! So you enjoyed the lifestyle that that uh, was able to provide for you then? Yes. So I was smoking marijuana. Now, of course, I did not recognize or you wouldn't have even been able to convince me that I was addicted to marijuana um, because, you know, even today with the way that it's uh, been um, advertised as medicinal and you have people who... um, who get these prescriptions and they smoke marijuana every day, of course, they'll say that it's for medicinal purposes or whatever. Right. The truth is, is that it's an addictive substance. And mm-hmm. um, and I didn't know that I was addicted to it because there was no problem. I didn't have a problem. Uh, the problem didn't come until many years later uh, when um, after my career started uh, in hairdressing uh, that um, and I moved to Toronto and uh, it was at the height of my career here in Toronto that my father and my best friend uh, died within the same month. Oh, wow. And uh, for about six months, I was despondent. I just, there was no comfort for me. No one, you, uh, it, I, looking back, I know that there were people, believers in my clientele mm-hmm. who were trying to share the word of God with me. And I, there was just no comfort to be found at all. I wasn't having anything that anybody had to say. I was just self-centered, uh, navel contemplating, so uh, self-centered and and hurt um, by the passing of my father and my best friend. And uh, I really wanted to die. Mm. But um, uh, I had I had tasted. During my lifetime, I had tasted cocaine and had even experimented a little bit with uh, freebase cocaine. And one day I said to my assistant, I said, let's get some freebase cocaine. And that was the beginning of the end. The freebase cocaine, cooking the, cooking the cocaine and freeing it from its base and then smoking it uh, took away the pain, instantly took away the pain. And unfortunately, that when you run out of freebase cocaine, you want more. And so uh, at that time, I had uh, access to money. I had my own money and I had um, I was at the top of my career. So, of course, I had access to thousands of dollars Mm. Um, and I would spend uh, up to a thousand dollars a night. 
for the first maybe month, month and a half of this cocaine addiction. So, Keith, I just wanted People, to ask you, I just wanted yeah. to ask you, what Go was ahead. this free base cocaine? For some of us, I mean, I, I don't know the difference. Can you explain what you took cocaine and then you went to free base? So, so most most people know cocaine in a powder that you that you then put in, you kind of chop it up, put it into lines, and then snort it. Mm-hmm, yeah. Now, when cocaine is processed from the plant, um, it's cooked down and then um, uh, dried, and it is added to a base um, during the drying process, uh, which allows it to be absorbed by the mucous membrane. In other words, with this particular base that's on there, you can um, add water to it and it can be dissolved, right? It can be dissolved in, in water. The powder form is, has a base on it uh-huh. that allows it to be dissolved, right? Mm. So what happens with the, with the free base is that you, there's another cooking process after you take the powder form of cocaine that you snort, that same powder form, and you cook it down. And what happens is that you free it from the base, right? And then once you free it from the base, it becomes a um, it becomes an oil kind of, and then a jelly. And then as it dries and cools, it becomes uh, from a jelly to a rock solid hard form. Okay. Now, now that can no longer be absorbed by the mucous membrane, mm-hmm. and it cannot be. Uh, um, uh, it's not no longer water soluble, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. The only way to ingest it then is to apply heat to it so that it then becomes a gas or smoke. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's called free base cocaine. Mm-hmm. Now, free base cocaine is the same drug that they're selling on the street as crack. The reason why they call it crack is because when it's lit and smoked, it makes a crackle sound. I see. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's why they call it crack. Okay, I gotcha. Instead of calling it, so it's called it crackly, crackly, crack. Mm-hmm. They call it crack. <laughs> I see. So I got my education <laughs> lesson on that right. crack cocaine and uh, free so base. Cocaine, mm-hmm. So it's a purer form of cocaine okay. than even those people who are snorting it in Studio 54 or wherever they're going to be snorting it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, those, yeah, it's a is an even purer form so that of ma- cocaine. So that makes it more potent then? It's more potent. It okay. goes right to the, um, it, when it's inhaled, it, the uh, the lungs carry it right straight to the bloodstream, right to the brain, and the bells go off really loud. Bing, bong, wow. bing, bong, wow. bing, bong. And, um, and what I've learned is that the uh, primary psychosis of free base cocaine is sex. Hmm. So hypersexuality, hypersexuality. Okay. I've seen people, including myself, act out in sexual ways that are not normally natural for them. Hmm. And so, yeah, it, um, it, it really took its toll on me. So, I mean, I, am, I was a person who uh, was already sexually um, uh, broken and then you add this free base cocaine, and boy, woo, wow. it just took over my entire life. Um, by the end, I smoked crack cocaine. I smoked crack cocaine and eventually became homeless it, uh, for about 30 years. Mm-hmm. I was, 29 years, 29, 20, 28, 29 years. 
And uh, my last uh, eight and a half years, I was homeless on the street. Uh, and I, uh, I tell people that I lived on the corner of Young and Wellesley. So because for eight and a half years, that's where you could find me. If I wasn't on the corner of Young and Wellesley, then I was on the corner of Young and Maitland or the corner of Church and Wellesley or the corner of Church and Maitland. So that whole that whole four corner uh, uh, radius, that block radius there, right. I was there. If I wasn't there, I was busy. Hmm. Okay, <laughs> one or the other, right? Yeah. So, you know, I really wanted to add there, really, that this really messes up someone's mind to the point that they lose everything that they have. How did you feel at this point? Did you feel the rock button or you just didn't care? So I, yeah, now it's true that there, there are uh, people in recovery and all other kind of people. I mean, you know, there's this, this is bottom that you're supposed to hit, mm. right? And for um, many, uh, many, many addicts, you hit a bottom and then there's another bottom. And then there's another bottom, and then there's a bottom after that. Oh, wow. And sometimes you get so used to the bottom that you you don't know anything else hmm. other than the bottom. Hmm. Unfortunately, uh, a lot of addicts succumb to the addiction all the way to death. Wow. Yeah. And so um, I just thank God that I was not one of those um, people. Mm -hmm, amen. So, um, right. Yeah. Now, um, you know, during my time on the street and um, here in Toronto, um, I quickly uh, took me uh, probably within the first seven months or six months of homelessness on the street. Um, I uh, started to get arrested and I uh, started to um, get arrested and probably I was arrested uh, probably maybe uh, four or five times a year. Wow. for the next uh, uh, seven years hmm. and um, various charges yeah, uh, yeah. stemming from stemming from um, uh, failure to appear, uh, which was a very popular one of mine, to step under, which another one of my uh, prominent charges. And even um, I have a couple of uh, trafficking charges. Now, the trafficking charges came when the undercover cops come and ask me if I could take them to go get some cocaine. And of course, the correct answer is yes, I can take you. <laughs> mm. <laughs> so, and then of course you get arrested and charged with trafficking. Mm. Okay. So, yes. And um, so, you know, eight and a half years of um, of out in the street, um, winters, um, springs, Sundays. I used to hate Sundays, and I hated holidays um, because that's when people were with their families right. and it wasn't busy. It wasn't busy on the street mm. on those days. So I hated those days. Um, but, you know, um, after near the end of the eight and a half years, I started to realize that I had dug a hole in my life that, and I remember saying this to somebody that I had dug a hole in my life so deep that only aliens could get me out because mm. I knew that nothing of this earth would be able to save me from this particular um, bondage that I was in. Mm -hmm. And um, now during my 30 years, 28 years of crack addiction, I have been to treatment. I've been to treatment uh, approximately 13 times and um, at least 13 times. Did you take um, yourself so, there? Yeah. 
Was it voluntary? Oh, yeah. Most of the time, most mm-hmm. of the times it was my own idea. Okay. Most of the times it was like, um, you know what, I'm going to go to treatment because I'm going to stop this. Mm-hmm. And I truly wanted to stop each and every time that I went. Um, I think probably maybe once or twice I only went so that I could get a 30-day kind of spin dry, um, uh, meaning that I would just eat and sleep for 30 days. Mm. And um, and that was only once or twice. All the rest of the times, I really had a strong desire to stop. Unfortunately, um, there takes a true surrender to God in order for an addict like myself to recover from addiction. Right. If there is any um, residue of myself left in the equation, what will happen and what did happen was that the bright idea would come that I can get high today. That would, that would always come back. And, um, and so, of course, uh, most of my treatment centers, except for the last one, and that had nothing to do with treatment because my last one, I had by that time, I had already surrendered to Christ. But um, although treatment was a, a – it certainly, it certainly helped, and I'll explain how it helped. Um, but the, the treatments by themselves uh, really don't help. What I, what I believe that they facilitate is they, they give the addict an opportunity to be introduced to 12-step program. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe that the 12-step program is a, uh, is a gift, to a God-given gift to the addict, which and the 12 steps themselves are designed to take this broken, self-centered addict and get him to realize how broken he is and that God is the only one who can fix him. Mm-hmm. And here are the instructions for you to allow God to do the fixing. And so, um, and these 12 steps are 12 individual steps, which if carried out properly with God, God Almighty, not the God of your own understanding, mm-hmm. or not the God of your own makeup, or not the God of your imagination, which I've tried many times, um, but uh, the uh, Alpha and the Omega, the creator of all heaven and earth, he who sent his son, that if you believe in him, you shall have salvation and everlasting life. That God, uh, the God of Abraham, uh, Isaac, and uh, uh, Jacob, uh, the God of Moses, that God, um, uh, the, the Redeemer. So, um, and just to be specific, a lot of people want to make up their own God. You know, I spoke to somebody oh, yeah. today that told me that God is Mother Nature. Not at all. No, no, Mother Nature, if Mother Nature is a Mother Nature, mm-hmm. uh, then she was made by God. So. Exactly, exactly, <laughs> Keith. Right. Keith, before you continue, I just, wanted to, I just wanted to ask you, this 12 Steps program that you were on, was that Christian-based? So, uh, you know, the, the Bible does support the, uh, the 12 Steps, but most uh, 12-step programs are not Christian-based mm-hmm. uh, because they want to be able to include everybody. Okay. And so they're, uh, most 12-step programs are not Christian-based. There are some Christian-based 12-step programs, though, mm-hmm. but most of them aren't. Most treatment centers are not. Right. You know, I, so, I listened yeah. to you share just now, and you mentioned that uh, through the, step, the 12-step program was uh, God's gift to addicts. And in realizing their brokenness and everything like that. And the scripture that came to me when you realized that you had to depend on God, you couldn't depend on yourself because if you depended on yourself, you were going to fall right back into that bottom. So when you hit rock bottom, the final bottom of the all bottoms, 
it's only Christ alone that can lift you up out of that miry clay. And the scripture that came to my mind was that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's not of Keith Alexandra's power, strength that you're doing this. It's only in Jesus Christ's power and strength that you were able to get yourself up and for him, the Lord, to get you up and out of the situation that you was, right? Right. It's mm-hmm. true. It's true. Mm-hmm. Uh, but unfortunately, so when you talk about the mind of the alcoholic or the addict, uh, unfortunately, one of the things that I have found that is, uh, that is that's crossed the board with the thinking of most alcoholics, the way that their mind are ma- is made up, is that there is the, and they talk about this in psychology, the ego is very, very present. So it's um, there's uh, we are selfish and self-centered to the core. That is the that's the the core problem is that are selfish and self-centered, and uh, we that's the reason why step one is step one. Step one says I am powerless, right? And um, and step two says that um, acknowledges that even though I'm powerless, um, I believe that there is a God that, that God can 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 help me. Uh, but I have to be able to understand what it means to be powerless. Unfortunately, myself and a lot of a- addicts say, yeah, okay, I, I, I'm powerless, but <laughs> I'm powerless, but I can fix this a little bit. I'm powerless, but if I do better, I won't be powerless, right? And so those are all of the, there's lots of buts that come along with the mind of the addict and the mind of the alcoholic. It's uh, very rare to find a truly surrendered um, addict or alcoholic. And when you find a truly surrendered addict and alcoholic, that's when recovery comes. Mm. And the reason why I say it's very rare is Mm -hmm. because those, although there are many, many, many thousands of recovered alcoholics and addicts, the, the percentage of the recovered alcoholics and addicts to those that succumb to the disease and die from the disease is is very few. Mm-hmm. Wow. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. There are many, many thousands, if not millions, of recovered alcoholics mm-hmm. and addicts, but they are they are just a small fraction wow. of those that actually suffer from the disease and continue to suffer because mm-hmm. they cannot hear that there needs to be absolute surrender. Surrender. Wow. You know, November 4th, 2010, I had, it was probably around 5.30 in the morning. I think it was probably 5 o'clock, 5.30 in the morning. And I had put my last hit of crack cocaine on the pipe, inhaled, and then exhaled. And for the very first time in my life while smoking crack cocaine, um, and it being my last hit, I had the sensation, I actually said the words, oh my, that was good. And I had this sense of satisfaction. Hmm. Never before had I ever smoked my last hit of crack and felt satisfaction. I always felt anxiety, fear, anger, and the need to get more. Okay. Right? Hmm. So for the very first time, I had this sense of satisfaction. And I actually put my pipe in my pocket and I walked to the community drop-in. And the community drop-in is designed for people like myself, homeless alcoholics and addicts who would come and, you know, take a nap, get something to eat, and then, you know, um, uh, stay there for a couple of hours, you know, rest, get something to eat. So I went to this drop-in and I got uh, something to eat, took a little nap. And when I woke up from my nap, my mind said to me, 
uh, call detox. Hmm. Now, the reason why I say it was a God-given moment of clarity is because there was still residue in my pipe, meaning that I could have still got high, Mm -hmm. and I still had a little change in my pocket from the night before, and I could have gone to the beer store and bought myself a large beer and continued in my addiction, right? Continued. But what my mind said was that I would use their $3.50 for some potato chips or snacks while I'm at the detox, and I'm going to throw my pipe away and go to detox. So that's what I did. I called detox. They had a bed for me. I threw my pipe away, and I went to detox. And, um, and so I, I, I recognized that it was a moment of clarity. Uh, I didn't know how significant it was at the time. Another thing that happened was that I went all the way through this uh, detox process and then went to the next stage, which was a, a transition uh, house. Uh, I went to the transition house, the, and I, um, I realized then also that there was a warrant out for my arrest. Now, another moment of clarity came when I said to my counselor, I have a warrant out for my arrest. Uh, I, I'm going to call the police and let them know that I'm coming in. Now, I never would have ever done that before, mm. right? Mm-hmm. So I believe that this was a God-given moment of clarity that the Holy Spirit had been working on me even from then mm-hmm. uh, at that particular time. Um, so another sign of surrender, which was characteristically not something that Keith Alexander would do. So I, I went to jail, and while in jail, I had a... Uh, a tantrum in jail uh, because uh, because I wasn't getting the type of uh, jail clothing that I thought I deserved. <laughs> oh mercy, that was the reason. <laughs> right. Oh, so I, I by this time I'd been in jail maybe two two weeks or whatever two three weeks maybe a month and it was clothing change day and so you take your jumper off and you push it across the bar and they're supposed to give you another jumper but the jumper so the jumper the jumpers that are new and freshly ironed and they have a status they have a perceived status in jail they really don't this is a imaginary status mm-hmm. <laughs> some of us <laughs> yeah. have put on these clothing right. but it really doesn't okay. um the truth is is that it's just jail clothes um and the underwear that they give you is still just used underwear wow. but mm-hmm. the darker blue underwear seems to be better than the lighter blue underwear because it looks newer. So I got a, the person who was giving the clothing out, pushed a wrinkled old jumper across the bar and some light blue underwear. And I threw a tantrum. I was climbing on my bars and acting like I had just lost my mind. I threw back the clothes and was screaming and hollering and trying to get my, trying to get you know, better clothing. I had another moment of clarity in that moment, and it was almost like an outer body experience where I could see this person who was clawing at the bars acting like something that was so far away from the true creation that Keith Alexander was supposed to become. And at that moment, I had this outer body experience, and it basically kind of almost propelled me away from the bars to the middle of my cell, I realized right in that moment that I had this this thought that my sobriety is contingent upon my relationship with God. Hmm. 
and that time after time after treatment after treatment, I tried to have a relationship with God, but it wasn't a true God because I was having a relationship with a God of my own understanding, Mm. a God of my own making, a God of my own imagination, and that I was too insane to be making up a God. And what I needed was because this hole that I had dug for my life was so deep and the monkey on my back was so aggressive. Again, and what I mean by the monkey on my back was that I was highly addicted to crack cocaine, which rang my bells, and sex. And those were two very powerful things that were controlling my life. And so I need a God that was going to be bigger than crack and sex. And and one of the things that happens is that when you go to jail, you want to find the toughest guy in jail and you be his friend, right? And um, even if you have to do stuff for him, then it's going to be okay. You know what I'm saying? But, you know, um, and so you, you, you get yourself aligned with the biggest, baddest guy in jail and you're okay while you're in jail. So I said, you know what? I need the biggest, baddest, because at this particular time, there was a, a pantheic um, type of understanding that I had about God, where you could choose any kind of God that you wanted. And so I said, you know what, I'm going to choose the biggest, baddest, boldest God that I know of. And the one that says that he is the great I am, the one that says that he is the Alpha and the Omega, the one who says that there is no God that stands beside him, that there is no God that can stand before him, the, uh, uh, the creator of all heaven and earth. That's the one that I'm going to choose Amen. this time. Mm-hmm. And I realized it became true for me. I had heard it before, but it had became true for me that God said uh, that, that it became true for me that uh, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And here I am in this jail cell, not understanding what everlasting life was, but I understood that because I was shaking these bars, asking for this jail jumper and jail uh, underwear, that I didn't have a life. Right. Mm -hmm. But I needed a life. Right. And if I could get a life before the everlasting life thing that I'm going to I'm going to surrender to that God. And it also became true to me. Someone had said to me many years before that, that Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth and the life that no man comes to the father except through me. And I had said to this person who told me that, that I didn't need a middleman, that I could have a connection with any God that I want to. And um, because he loves me. What I didn't understand at the, at the time was that, you know, I wouldn't love anybody who said that they loved me, but they didn't love my child. And so I needed to love God's son who came and died on Calvary's cross for me. Right. I needed that man in the middle. I needed that intercessor in order for me to have a relationship with God. And I remember sitting in that middle of that jail cell and I got down on my knees and I said, OK, Jesus, if I need you, then I need you. I says, um, get me out of this, and I will dedicate my life to you. I remember being saying that specifically. He says, get me out of this mess, and I will dedicate my life to you. And, um, and I began to um, um, dissect, and, um, and not I, I guess the Holy Spirit began to have me shed away and, mm-hmm. and to shave off things that I thought was me and to surrender to him, because I remember just kind of peeling away and saying, you could take that, you could take that, you could take that. I don't care what I look like. You could just take right. that. And, um, and, and just giving myself, giving myself, giving myself to Christ in that moment. And, and so, um, uh, I only had one condition. I said, oh yeah. Um, and, and 
I want to I want to join one of those black churches where they sing gospel songs and clap hands. <laughs> Talking about and songs, I wanted to ask you, Keith, when did you have your first interaction with church? Did you go to church as a, a youngster? Oh yes, yeah. so I okay. mean I was raised Catholic. I was raised Catholic, okay. so I mean um, okay. I had all of the um, uh, ritual teachings that they that mm. they have in Catholicism um, and everything like that. Unfortunately, my prodigal lifestyle um, took over all of that teaching. You know, I um, I so when I was after my mom died, and uh, we, during there was a small part that I didn't tell you, cause, but um, uh, my father wasn't able to take care of us, and he took us to a foster a lady who had this foster home, and she took care of uh, she she took us in. Um, I was abused in that uh, foster home, not sexually, um, mentally, and uh, physically. I was uh, beaten and um, and abused. But one spring, a lady came from down the street. I don't even know who she was or where she came from. She came down the street, um, and she she I think she even pointed to me and says, "Can I take him to Bible study with me?" And uh, the lady who ran the house said, "Yeah, sure, take him." <laughs> so took me to Bible study, and that's when I learned about. Um, uh, they repeated uh, John 3:16 over mm. and over to us. We were just little kids at this time. I was probably uh, 11, 12 years old uh, at this time. And because, and they also told us the story of the second coming of Christ, and that without um, being in Christ, that we would not be one of the ones who um, go with Him uh, when He comes again, and that when He does come again, those who are saved will be uh, will meet Him in the sky and. Uh, um, live with him forever. Um, and so um, during that Bible study, uh, it was a, probably a week-long Bible study. By the end of the week or whatever, I had asked to be saved. Um, so they they had this big party. They sang. They had this big party. Of course, they, they, they prayed with me. They had this big party. And um, I remember my life changing. Now, there was a dark cloud over my life living at this particular foster home. But I remember this cloud of oppression lifting during the two weeks that I had the Bible. And I said that I had the Bible for two weeks because about two weeks after that Bible study, I was sent to summer camp. The morning that I was going to summer camp, uh, clothes packed, ready, waiting for the bus, uh, a man came up to me uh, at the bus and took my Bible. He says, here, you don't need this Bible. You, what you need is a sleeping bag. And he gave me a sleeping bag. And I tell people that I stayed asleep for the next 28 years. So, right. you know, metaphorically, I stayed asleep because I didn't have a Bible after that. Mm -hmm. And the foster home was not an environment for a 12-year-old saint. Right, right, right. Right. I praise God for the fact that, you know, I think God was preparing you with this two week Bible study, knowing what maybe your journey was going to be ahead, because at least here you had your foundation. Right, right. right. And yeah. so, you know, I tell people a lot of times that just like the prodigal son, the prodigal son never stopped being the son of the father. Right. And the father never stopped being the father of the prodigal son. Um, Jesus says that you have not I've not lost one. Right. Um, now, even when they, uh, 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 the scripture that says, raise a child in the way that they should go, and when they go, when they uh, are older, uh, that they will that not, they will not stray. Right, mm -hmm. they will not stray. Um, or even if they do stray, they'll come back to it. And so, um, and so that's what I believe happened. I believe that God obviously sealed my life at that particular time, and that, um, and that I was allowed to have this prodigal lifestyle, you know, 
Um, and so that's what I um, that's mm. what I believe happened because what happened was that just like the prodigal son, right after uh, acknowledging um, Jesus as my Lord and Savior, right after surrendering myself, and so in the in the story of the prodigal son, he says he came to himself, mm-hmm. and he says that even if I just go back to my father's house and become a servant, that I will live better than I live. That was my mindset. I wasn't right. thinking about the prodigal son at the time, but I thought to myself, you know what, um, even if I become one of those, you know, white sock sandal wearing, um, I thought I thought about mm-hmm. Jehovah Witness at the time, because I didn't know any better. Mm-hmm. But I thought to myself, I one of the Bible thumpers, um, that I would live better than I live right now, because, you know, Bible thumpers don't go to jail. That was my analogy at the time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, um, and so uh, when people today call me a Bible thumper, I say, hallelujah, thank mm-hmm. you, Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so for, I'm not a thumper, but, you know, you, they, they throw all kind of words at you when right. you when you speak about Christ. So so what happened was that now I'm being held in jail. Um, uh, by this time, uh, the charge that I was uh, had answered to was already taken care of in court, but now I'm being held by immigration. And immigration uh, is going to hold me for the next two years with no release. They're going to hold me for two years, and then they're going to deport me. Now, while they're holding me, they're not allowing me to have any counsel because they already have a case against me. Because of my criminality over the last eight years, they they found me inadmissible to Canada. So they're going to hold me in the West Detention Center for two years, and then they're going to deport me. Uh, they were already building their case against me. And so here I am in the middle of this jail cell asking Jesus to let me out, to get me out of this mess, and I'll dedicate my life to him. So the next day, I get a visit, a professional visit from the immigration division of the bail program. Now, here's the miracle, is that early on you asked me about my charges, and I told you that um, I have seven failures to appear on my record. Now, a failure to appear occurs when the judge asks you if you will come back on your own recognizance to this particular court date. They say something like, Mr. Alexander, we're not going to be able to take care of your case today. Will you come back on uh, August 17th? Now, the correct answer is, yes, sir. Right. Okay. (laughs) That's the correct answer. So I've always said, yes, sir, I'll be here August Mm -hmm. 17th. Is it? Okay. Yes. What time? Sure. Nine o'clock. Okay. I'll be here. Mm -hmm. Now, always, always, what happens on August 17th is that I'm not ready to go back to court (laughs) because I'm busy. Right. And so I have seven failures to appear on my record. Now, seven failures to appear, uh, uh, not only suggest, but confirm that I cannot be trusted by my word. Right. It confirms that. So here's this lady coming with the bail program, and she says, here, sign this paper, and we're going to get you a bed at the Good Shepherd, and you're going to make all your court dates, um, uh, okay? And I said, are you sure you're coming for me? And she says, yeah, Keith Alexander. I says, well, did you read my record? She says, yes, I read your record. She says, but if you don't sign this paper, nobody's coming to get you. Hmm. I was like, okay. So I signed the paper, and the next day they're calling me to get out. And I am, uh, I'm, 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 in the, I'm in the area where they're giving me back my clothes. They give me back my shirt. They give me back my pants. They give me back my shoes. 
I'm lacing up my shoes and I says, all right, Jesus, because this is like the first miracle, right? And I'm like, all right, Jesus, it's you and me, because I know I'm not supposed to get out. Right. Right. So now I'm getting out and I go to the Good Shepherd and um, I tell the counselor, who is now my sponsor, I tell him uh, the story of what has just happened to me. And um, during my eight and a half years, I had become accustomed to doing something called dumpster diving, where I would jump in a dumpster and I would find empty beer bottles, liquor bottles, beer cans, and things like that, take it back to the beer store and get money, but, you know, redeem those for money, right? Right, right. And so um, uh, while at this particular, um, while at the Good Shepherd, after being released from jail, I decide that I need some money, so I go dumpster diving, and the only thing that I find dumpster diving, the only thing I've jumped in all the dumpsters that I normally jump in, the only thing that I come back with is a Bible. I knew it. Amen. <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> so I don't think it was the same Bible that the guy took away from me uh, 40 years ago. But uh, anyway, it was the only thing of value that I had. Amen. So I remember um, I didn't know where to start. So I just kind of started a proverb. Um and it, it talked to me about walking in counsel, um, not to walk in counsel with, mm. with the ungodly. That's what he called it. Um, mm. That's what the Word of God calls it, with the ungodly. And so I started to just concentrate on that. I was like, okay, do not walk in counsel with the ungodly, mm. you know. And and, and it, it, there were other things that, that, of course, I can't remember right now. But I do remember that that, would be the, that was the first thing that God kind of told me. And uh, also, um, what happened was I decided that I was going to go to treatment one more time. So let's say I went to treatment 14 times. So now the 14th treatment center, I decided to go to a Christian uh, treatment center. I remember saying I want to go to a Christian treatment center. So they sent me to uh, Harbor Light, uh, which is a Salvation Army treatment center. And they have a um, daily devotion that they do every morning. So we go to the daily devotion. I can hardly wait for daily devotion because this is my new walk with Christ, and I want to hear something about Jesus. I, I've, I, I didn't. I've never wanted church like I want it now. I want. Ready. I want the Word of God. I want it. I want it. And so mm-hmm. we get there, and um, and the and the um, uh, the person running the devotion did uh, did it on Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. And it was my very first time hearing the words, for I know the plans that I have for you, oh, saith wow. the Lord. Plans, plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Wow. And um, plans to deliver you and to give you a good life. And so I remember breaking down crying. Mm-hmm. Because although this um, this particular officer, uh, Salvation Army officer, was talking to everybody in the devotion and sharing her testimony about what um, uh, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven meant for her, mm-hmm. and um, but I could hear him saying to me to not worry. Mm-hmm. Now, and to not worry, uh, the reason why not to worry was because I still, even though I was not in jail anymore, I still had these charges of immigration. Uh, looming over my head, right? Mm -hmm. And so now I was assured, just from this one devotion, I was assured that God was going to deliver me from this particular situation, right? Now I'm going to have to back up that while I was at the Good Shepherd, between jail and Harbor Light, while I was at the Good Shepherd, I found a sponsor, and I actually took the 12 steps. Now this was not my first time going through step one, step two, step three, step four, step five, Step six, step seven, step eight, step nine, step 
10, 11, and 12. This was not my first time doing this. Um, I'd done this many times before, but this time, the God that I chose as the head was the God of Abraham, uh, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob. Moses, the the Redeemer, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Jesus, uh, the Alpha and the Omega. So I, I, I had, when I, um, I, I gone through all my steps and everything like that, and as I was speaking with my sponsor at the time, and I was doing these steps or whatever, I kept mentioning Jesus, and when he would talk about God, I was like, Jesus, and I would, you know, um, talk to him about uh, the uh, the reason why Jesus had, had come. You know, in my theory, um, what I would have to say at the time was an immature kind of Christian way. You know what I'm saying? I didn't really know as much as I wouldn't be able to say it like I say it now, mm-hmm. but because I didn't know, but I just knew that Jesus was the answer, and this was going to be my God. And you can have your own God if you want to, but Jesus. We'll just talk about Jesus while we do this. Anyway, so I I do the inventory, and the inventory is where I kind of talk about all my uh, resentments and the things that with the ways in which I've hurt other people and the ways in which I have acted out in ways that I am not proud of and the things that I would like to change. And then after um, the step four, uh, which is the inventory, you do a step five, which is the confession. So I confessed to him these things that I had done, the resentments that I had, and um, and the ways in which I act in, uh, against what I would like to act and how I would like to act, you know, and uh, how I have... Um, uh, not allowed God to run my life, and this whole kind of confession was around that um, uh, uh, part of the, uh, this particular process of healing. So the next step is to go home and by yourself, um, step six and seven, you go home by yourself and you open up these pages, the pages of your inventory, and you itemize uh, item by item the uh, things of your resentments, your hurts, the way in which you've hurt other people, uh, the way in which you uh, um, have gone against God's will and all of these things, and you place them before God and ask God to forgive you, to heal you, and to make you what he wants you to be. So these are the instructions, the uh, step six and seven. And so I go upstairs, and for a good hour, hour and a half, I have all of this stuff out, and I'm praying on my knees uh, over this stuff, and I'm inviting Jesus in. And then I go downstairs after I finish to do something that was very normal for me. And I was a smoker. And I pulled out my pack of cigarettes and I pulled out my cigarette and I light my cigarette and I cannot inhale the smoke. Mercy. <laughs> That's powerful. I cannot, I cannot inhale this. I thought it was the cigarette. Wow. I says, oh, my God, what happened? Wow. <laughs> right. And and so I, I put the cigarette out because. I'm not totally convinced it's a cigarette, mm-hmm. but I suspect it's a cigarette. We'll try again in the morning with another cigarette. So that's what I said. And so I put the cigarette out and I went to bed. The next morning, um, I tried another cigarette from someone else's pack, and it was exactly the same result. I could not smoke the cigarette. So I put that cigarette out, and I gave my cigarettes to a friend of mine, and my lighter, and I says, I don't think God wants me to smoke. So I'm telling this to another chap, and I say, I don't think God wants me to smoke because this is what happened. And he says, well, you were smoking cheap cigarettes. Come have a DeMaurier with me. 
And I said, okay, because I love DeMaurier, and I am going to go out the back and have a DeMaurier with him. I put the DeMaurier in my mouth, and I lit it up, and on that first inhale, I choked, couldn't handle it. I said, okay. I gave it back to him, and I said, God does not want me to smoke. Mm -hmm. And I became a non-smoker. It just ended. Yes. It just ended. There was no thought, no nothing. I didn't think about a cigarette after that. Wow. The only time I think about cigarettes now is when I'm walking past somebody and they're smoking. Mm. And I think, oh, my God, that is horrible. Wow. Wow. <laughs> right. What an awesome God, eh? Yes. So, so now I'm at the, at, the, uh, at the Good Shepherd. We've had our first day of devotion. After leaving the first day of devotion, I am filled with the Holy Spirit. I have this, this presence, this whole kind of... This joy, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I know that, um, that, uh, it, I asked somebody, I said, that verse that the, uh, um, that the captain had, um, uh, quoted, uh, where is it? So they showed me Jeremiah 29 11. And, um, so I knew that. And on the way out of the, uh, chapel at the time, someone gave me one of those daily bread booklets. Mm-hmm. So, um, later on that day, I started reading the daily bread booklet and it was all on the book of John. And so in the book of John, when the Pharisees bring to Jesus the woman caught in the act, and I'm reading the story, and all of a sudden, um, uh, as, he's, as he's writing down in the, in the dirt, uh, he says, every one of you who is without sin, may he be the first one to throw the stone. And one by one, they all disappeared. And he says to her, he says, well, where are those who are here to condemn you? And she looks around and says, well, there's none. He says, well, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. I tell you, Hmm, I cried, I cried, I cried because I thought, oh, my God, this is amazing. Mm -hmm. I could feel, I could feel the same thing she felt. I could feel the same thing she felt. She must have felt like, really? Mm. I can go? Yes. I can go? Yeah. I can go and walk like every what? Hmm. Yeah. Wow. And so, um, and so I, I said, okay, so those are my new marching orders. Go and send no more. Yes. <laughs> so that just completed my day. Now, um, of course, now remember I told you that I had one condition and that was that I joined a black church. I need to find a black church. And, uh, uh, while I was at the good shepherd, I was washing dishes and a friend of mine came and says, Keith, I'm going to church on Sunday. You want to come with me? And I said, yeah, this is a white guy. And I said, sure. And uh, he says, he says, he says, yeah, it's one of those black churches. And they sing gospel music and they clap hands, just like I asked God in the jail cell. And I says, are you joking? Anyway, so we go there. And now many, 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 many times since that day uh, that the man took away my Bible, I had been to churches for funerals and and, um, weddings and, you know, um, all kind of other things. And especially if you go to a black Baptist church or one of those type of uh, uh, Pentecostal churches or a Methodist church or something like that, where uh, the black preacher then at the end of the sermon looks directly at you, the sinner, and says, would you like to come up front and Mm. surrender to Christ? Mm -hmm. And each and every time that that has ever happened to me, I clutch the pew like Oh no! You are not getting me up there. I don't. You need to stop talking to me. Don't even look over here because I'm not going. So on this particular day, I'm there, and I am there specifically for the altar call. I remember very little about the service other than they sang um, 
uh, don't pass me by. And, uh, and so I remember very little about the sermon. But when he says, those that want to come to the altar uh, for salvation, I, I, there's, a, there's a story by John Bunyan called, uh, anyway, I'll, I'll get back. Anyway, uh, in this story by John Bunyan, the person who, um, who, who realizes that he had sinned is, um, is, is going to the, uh, trying to seek God, is seeking God. It's called Pilgrim's Progress, rather, that's it. And in Pilgrim's Progress, the person who, um, at one particular, at the very beginning, hears God's word, it is now convicted with this burden um, that he has, that he's a sinner, and he goes on this journey um, to seek God. And, um, and there are various pitfalls that he goes uh, through, and uh, all this whole journey in order for him to get to uh, to get to God, and uh, one of them is acknowledging his sin and his confession, and then coming to the um, uh, the uh, coming to the the altar, and and um, and it, this this burden shedding from him. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I remember um, even before I read uh, Pilgrim's Progress that there was this whole as I was going up to the altar, there was this I. I remembered every single act of prostitution. So there's this prostitute that's going up to the altar. There's this liar that's going to the altar. There's this thief that's going to the altar. There is this homeless drug addict that's going to the altar. There is this um, uh, molester that's going to the altar. There is this sinner, this homosexual, going to the altar, and I went to the altar, and I got down on my knees. <laughs> hmm. And hmm. Uh, Brother Garfield, he's one of my brothers today. I didn't know him from anybody at the time. I tell you, he took me through the perfect, what I call the sinner's, sinner's prayer. prayer. Mm-hmm. I know that it's not in the Bible, but there is this process of, 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 of getting the person in my condition to acknowledge that they are a broken sinner, and that they need Jesus to confess that I believe that God sent his only begotten son, Jesus, who died on Calvary's cross and shed his blood that I may be saved, that I may be healed, that Mm -hmm. I may be washed from my sins, that I may be reconciled unto the Father, and that I believe that Jesus rose on the third day Mm -hmm. victorious and that uh, he ascended into heaven and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. Amen. And that I believe that, um, that by faith I am saved. And so, um, and so I did this. And in the amount of time that we just did it together, everything that I took up, all of, those, all of that stuff that I took up to the altar was gone. Amen. I remember wiping the tears off my face and opening my eyes, and for the very first time in my life, I'm 49 years at the particular time, and for the very first time in my life, I say to myself, okay, I don't have to go and search and find out who I am anymore. I know who I am, Praise the Lord. right? And I yes. knew that I was a, a, a child of God. Mm-hmm. I, say, I say now that I was a new prince in the yes. court of the Most High, Amen. because yeah. that's what I felt like at the moment, mm-hmm. right? And I looked behind me. And all of that stuff that I took up to the altar with me was gone. I mean, yesterday really was gone, Mm -hmm. like gone. And I felt forgiven. 
And I acknowledge, not like the kind of forgiveness that I got from my mother and my father when they said, I forgive you. Mm -hmm. Not like that. This was absolute forgiveness. This was like, I don't even have to worry about that stuff from yesterday no more. It's gone, right? And I didn't have to worry about who I am or what I was going to do. I knew that God was going to take care of everything. I could feel the newness. I could feel the difference. Mm Mm-hmm. So about a month after that, um, uh, during the month after that, uh, there were instructions that I had gone through as a new member of Grant AME Church. And during these instructions, they talked about baptism. And so um, I had gotten baptized and uh, as an outward expression of this newfound uh, relationship and uh, acknowledgement of who I am in Christ. And so I got baptized, and the night of my baptism, while I was asleep, um, I could feel that I was in the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, mm. in my bed, there was a party going on because I was jumping and praising and worshiping, and I could feel that I was surrounded by saints, and I was in this beautiful place, and I could feel the presence of the Holy Spirit. And I could also feel Him kind of just quieting me down like mm-hmm. like a parent or a love or a parent would do a child just kind of quieting me down mm-hmm. and then he took me on a silent tour of my anatomy and mm-hmm. he showed me the bottom of my feet and came up and he showed me my ankles my shins my knees my thighs my growing my buttocks my back my stomach my shoulders the top of my head and i woke up with the knowledge that i was not designed to sleep with other men all of that mindset that I had before was totally taken away from me. It, I didn't even understand it. It was, it was, I just, I thought I threw back the sheets. I sat up and I threw back the sheets and I said, what mm. is going on? And I was like, oh man, like my mind was blown because like this was true yeah. and this was real and this could only be God because, Amen. because it, mm-hmm. It was so different from everything else that I ever thought, mm-hmm. and it was true. Yeah. And so, you know, um, that's so powerful. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. It was, it was, you know, I, I said in my in my testimony, I showed you the thing that I, you know, this knowledge that um, that no matter how hard that I love Steve and Rob and Brian and Jonathan and 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 Eric mm-hmm. and <laughs> any of those guys. No matter how much I love them, I could never be fruitful. Things that I had realized was that God does not place me in a position to join in in a fruitful and fruitless endeavor. Yes. Right? Yes. He would never put me in a fruitless relationship. Yes, yes, so true. And that desire that I had to hold another man was taken away. Amen. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. <laughs> that is amazing. It was taken away, yeah. and it still stays the same to this very day. Amen. Glad and to God. Uh, yeah, so um, and so, um, you know, there have been, um, you know, other revelations. You mm-hmm. know, the Holy Spirit continues to. I wake up every morning, and the very first t- thing that I do is um, is cut on my um, my talking Bible app, and um, it speaks to me. So that way, uh, because what happens is that, you know, at four o'clock in the morning, five o'clock in the morning, sometimes three o'clock in the morning, uh, Satan starts to lie to me and tell me that I'm too short, I'm too fat, I'm too old, uh, you know, mm. and I'm no good. 
um, never going to make it, all this other kind of lie. And so, you know, and so what I do is I cut on the Bible app and, um, and his word um, calms me down because I can concentrate on his word. And there's nothing but peace and joy uh, in, in his presence. And so I cut on his word and I go back to sleep. And if I don't go back to sleep, then I get a word, you know. And, uh, uh, and so that's what I do. I wake up every morning and I'm in his word probably for um, about uh, three, three hours uh, every morning. Awesome. And, um, you know, he continues to strengthen me and continues to lead me and continues to uh, guide me and teach me and mold me. Um, you know, I'm not mm-hmm. perfect at mm-hmm. all. Still cuss somebody out, but <laughs> it's a lot less frequent. <laughs> so Keith, tell me, how long has it been since your, your journey, since uh, the Lord transformed you into a new creature? You know, the Bible says I'm a, I'm a new creature in Christ. So right, how yes. long has that okay, been so that since was, that transformation? Yeah, that was that was in 2011. Oh, amen. Praise the Lord for that. So tell us about today. How did God transform you? How is he using you today? So today I so today I I do hair mostly. Um I dedicate my career to my sisters uh and my um and I only do uh black hair. Mm-hmm. Um it is a godly, God-inspired. I mean, you come there, you know. You know I play, um, I play gospel music all day long. And every once in a while, I'll cut on Anita Baker or Regina Bell or some Patti LaBelle or you know, um, uh, some Sarah Vaughan or you know, uh, Luther Vandross or you know. This last week, I went, I did a whole little Elton John phase and stuff like that. But most of the time, it is uh, gospel music. You know, there is a big, uh, huge uh, mirror on my wall that uh, I had an artist paint uh, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven on. So you clearly know that this is a Christian salon that mm-hmm. you're in. And um, uh, the other time that I, uh, I allow God to lead me, um, I do some outreach. Um, I have a food bank that I started three years ago in my church. And my Wednesdays are filled with that. During this whole time of COVID, uh, we uh, pack up boxes and then serve uh, sometimes three, sometimes 400 households um, oh, wow. per week. Yeah. What area is and, that that you're serving? Uh, so yeah, we're right here in the um, in the beaches area. So it's Gerard, um, Gerard and and Maine between Gerard and Maine, Gerard and Woodbine, that area. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Praise yeah. the Lord. Yeah. Have you ever seen Robbie again? Robin. Okay. So the testimony is that um, you know during my walk with Christ, he um, he spoke to me one day and told me to get higher education. I was a high school dropout, obviously. Um, you know, because the uh, allure of going downtown was uh, more important to me uh, than going to get an education. So I dropped out uh, twice before the age of 15. And about my second year or so in school, uh, my brother called me and said that I am by Robin's bedside. And Robin is um, is ill. The doctors say that he won't make it through the day. I don't know oh, what to wow. do. Mm. And so I said, put the phone on speakerphone. And I, um, and so I prayed. Um, I took Robin through Robin and my brother both through that same sinner's prayer that, um, that Garfield had taken me through, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, where they, um, uh, Robin was, I guess, semi-conscious or unconscious or conscious enough that he was able to squeeze Seth's hand. 
but he could hear, uh, Seth was assured that he could hear what was going on. And, um, and I let him know who I was. So he knew that it was me Mm -hmm. and I asked him to repeat after me. And so I remember my brother repeating after me that, you know, that he acknowledged that he was a sinner and that, um, he believed that, uh, Jesus, that God sent his son, Jesus, to sacrifice himself on Calvary's cross and that his blood was shed for my salvation, for my redemption, for my healing. And, um, and that by faith, I believe that I am saved, you know? Um, so, um, I had taken him through the same, um, sinner's prayer. And I believe that, um, I know that my brother's life was changed, uh, has started to change from that moment. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I believe that, that there was a reconciliation, not only with me and him, but with God and, and Robin. So I fully, uh, by faith, I fully expect that when I get to heaven, I'll Amen. see Robin and Amen. we'll be able to embrace each other the way their brothers were meant to do. Amen. So, Praise God for yeah. that. That's awesome. Yeah. You know, that's such a powerful, powerful testimony that you shared with us today. And I just want to thank you so much for coming forth and sharing with us. God transformed your life. You really had a journey, but you know, God's hand was on you, even in your life of sin. God, you know, some of the things that you mentioned about, you know, finding the Bible in this, in a dumpster of all places, you can only say that was definitely God that, you know, placed that there in for you. And then, you know, you're going into the Salvation Army and the, the devotional is Jeremiah 29 God is definitely speaking to you you know he's telling you that he has a plan a purpose for your life yeah it's just awesome and then the cigarette you know I'm like holy God you know only God so you know I praise God for you and how he is has transformed you into the powerful mighty man of God that you are today and what he's doing in your life right now so praise god for that thank you so much my brother for sharing today and i know someone's going to be blessed and encouraged from this testimony that you've shared with us do you have any final words or any words of encouragement that you would just like to share with even maybe someone who's struggling in addiction or homosexual lifestyle right i think that the uh most important thing that um you talked about when you asked um uh, that I would, if I had anything to share with people who are struggling mm-hmm. uh, with either um, uh, homosexual, the spirit of homosexuality, same-sex attraction, or even addiction, the acknowledgement that there is a struggle, mm-hmm. it is necessary to understand that there is a battle going on, a struggle, right? And that there is a lack of freedom going on. If you are struggling with same-sex attraction, you're struggling with um, addiction, you're struggling even with the spirit of homosexuality, um, then understanding that absolute total surrender will bring the peace that only God can give you, um, the joy that only God can give you. I would also suggest that uh, acknowledge the God of creation acknowledge that he sent his only begotten son, Jesus, to uh, save you, to save not only your eternal soul, um, but to change your life while here on earth. Uh, He has laid down a foundation, uh, a path, uh, if you will, to a a life of freedom, 
um, where we are uh, even co cooperators um, with this path because it tells us to resist Satan and he will flee. Mm-hmm. I mean, so there are things that we have to do. Right. Um, we also have to call on the name of Jesus. Um, we have to be able to, uh, when he was tempted, he called on, um, he, he called on the word of God. And so he, you know what I'm saying? Uh, so there are things that we have to do in cooperation with the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Um, I think that if you are suffering in this worldly lifestyle, or even caught, if you're a Christian that's caught up in this uh, uh, fallenness or whatever, to acknowledge, to acknowledge, to shed a light on it, um, you know, uh, all of that stuff is in the darkness. And if you put a light on it, uh, you put the light of Jesus on it, then it will, uh, it'll flee, it'll dissipate, it'll, it'll go away. And um, it, it may not be as... Uh, uh, much of an upheaval as it was for me, meaning that, you know, it might like cause everything was just kind of very fast and it just kind of happened really quickly. And so uh, for me and definite, it may not be that way for you. It may be a process for you, uh, but understand that uh, if you are in Christ, that nothing can separate you from the love of God. Amen. And if you are in Christ, that he will never leave you nor forsake. Mm. Uh, if you are in Christ and you are following his word and reading his word and digesting on his word, you cannot help but heal because that's what he is. Uh, that's who he is and that's mm. what he does. And so my encouragement for, um, and to reach out, to reach out to, to reach out to, to pastors, to reach out to other saints, to praise him, to give him praise and glory, find a church, uh, uh, find a choir, uh, learn to sing praise and worship songs, even in your despair, because he inhabits the praises of his people. So that means that he is there while you open up your mouth and sing praises. And where he is there, um, there is uh, uh, salvation, there is liberty, you know. Mm-hmm. And so if you are if you are struggling, the most important thing, like I say, is to acknowledge that it's a struggle and that you lack freedom. To then go to the uh, the number one liberator. Amen. Indeed. Seek the number one liberator. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yes, so true. Well said. You know, be in Christ. Find yourself in a church and sing praises unto his name. You know, definitely be in Christ. Be in the word. God will definitely, the saying says, if he, if he brings you to it, he will carry through it. And definitely yes. you can see God has had his hand on your life through and through. And he's brought you this far by faith. You'll keep trusting and keep holding on. Again, I just want to thank you so very much for sharing with us today. Greatly appreciate you sharing your personal testimony of how God has changed and transformed your life. So thank you again. Thank you so right. very much, Kathleen. God bless you. God bless. And uh, I just pray that this uh, that this uh, podcast of yours uh, 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 reaches uh, many people, yes. and um, and that uh, God is able to work through it. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to the show today. I hope you enjoy the topic and found something that you can apply to your own life. Don't forget to share this episode with your family and friends. And remember, live well daily. Thank you.